0: To achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep, search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.
1: Hello, I'm Teresa McKee, your host for A Mindful Moment. Thank you for joining me as we explore ways to increase mindfulness in our day-to-day experiences. Mindfulness is presence, awareness. It's paying attention to what's happening within us and around us. Mindfulness increases our emotional, physical, and mental well-being. It can also enhance our focus and productivity. And there are many health benefits from practicing mindfulness and meditation, from lowering blood pressure to increased longevity. Perhaps most importantly in today's chaotic world, mindfulness strengthens our ability to be more compassionate to ourselves as well as others. With everyone searching for more time, I thought it might be helpful to talk about time management, but also about being mindful with our time. I recently met with Laura Vanderkam to discuss her new book, Tranquility by Tuesday, Nine Ways to Calm the Chaos and Make Time for What Matters, which seems to fit the bill. Laura is the author of several time management and productivity books, including The New Corner Office, Juliet's School of Possibilities, Off the Clock, I Know How She Did It, What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast, and 168 Hours. Her work has appeared in publications including The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, and Fortune. She is the host of the podcast Before Breakfast and the co-host with Sarah Hart Unger of the podcast Best of Both Worlds. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation because I am a productivity nut to begin with, Um, but I found a lot of interesting uh, variances in your book compared to some of the things that I do, so it was very interesting. Before we get into some of the rules that the book is covers, Nine Ways to Calm the Chaos, I'm wondering if you could share what the Tranquility by Tuesday project was that you based the book on.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I write self-help for very busy people. And so if I'm going to recommend something, I want to know that it actually works, um, that the self-help is reliably helpful. So I recruited 150 people, to try out these nine time management rules over a period of about nine weeks. So this happened in spring of 2021. They filled out all sorts of information at the beginning, demographics, how they felt about their lives and so forth, how they spent their time. Then each week, they would learn a new rule. They would then answer questions about how they planned to implement this rule in their life. And then a week later, they would answer more questions on how it went. Um, And this cycle would repeat through the nine rules over nine weeks. And then at the end of the project, I measured them again on various dimensions on how they felt about time and did so, you know, one month and three months later as well. And so the goal was to see, you know, if people at least try to follow these rules and think about how they're going to try to follow these rules in their lives, will they feel better about their time? And, you know, the good news is yes they do. <laughs> so I'm I was happy to see that.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that they're called rules, but you've got a lot of flexibility in there because throughout the book, you describe sort of pushback that you received from participants or challenges they had. And so they're rules, but they're not rigid rules, right?
0: No. And I know some people are like rules. I don't want to follow rules. <laughs> it reminds me too much of, of school or something like that. No, it might help to just think of them as guidelines, as strategies, as ideas you should think about putting in your life. You know, you don't have to do anything. I'm certainly not going to make anyone do anything, but I do know that other busy people have tried these rules, suggestions, strategies, uh, whatever you want to call them, and have seen really cool things happen in their lives as a result. And so, you know, I'm suggesting that readers try them out.
1: Excellent. Okay. Well, the first Three rules in the book are about calming down, which almost everyone I know needs to calm down a little bit. (laughs) Most people think they don't have enough time. They're frantically trying to get things done. So I'm wondering if you can share, you know, just an example of how calming down can help us with our schedule or our time management.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, really quick, the first three rules, one is to give yourself a bedtime. The second is to plan on Fridays. The third is to move by 3 p.m. And so these are very simple rules, this is not rocket science, but uh, giving yourself a bedtime is a very easy way to make sure that you are not only getting enough sleep, but that you are getting that amount of sleep pretty much every single day, uh, which allows people to just feel so much more in control of their time, to have more energy, um, to be able to plan their lives with some predictability because you know when a day begins, you know when a day ends. And then you can make mindful choices about what you wish to include um, in that space of hours. Um, You know, planning allows us to uh, figure out what is important for us to do. When we look at a week as a whole, we make more mindful choices about what we wish to put into it. Uh, We solve problems that we see coming up. We make progress toward our goals. And by moving, you know, by 3 p.m. every day, we are you know, boosting our energy, making sure we're taking breaks, um, getting a little bit of physical activity, which can, can boost mood and all that sort of thing. Um, but taken together, yes, these rules will help people calm down. They will help people, you know, start to react to life less as, as it's coming at you and more saying, well, I am in charge of my time. I have the ability to approach time strategically uh, by being smart about how I take care of myself, how I view my calendar in general. Um, and, and by calming down, we just find that life is less of this sense of chaos. You know, it's it's more orderly. I mean, yes, life is still complex. I, the metaphor I sometimes like to use is a circus. And, and when people say life is a circus, they are like, oh, it's out of control. Everything is moving everywhere. But if you've ever been to a circus, You know, there's a problem with that metaphor because, yes, circuses are very complex. There are a ton of moving parts, but it is so well organized. Everyone gets where they're going at exactly the right time. No one gets shot out of a cannon when they are not supposed to be shot out of a cannon, right? And and so we actually want our lives to be like this. They are full. There are tons of moving parts. That's great. Like I love when people have burstingly full lives, but you feel on top of it. And that is a fantastic way to feel.
1: Definitely, and I do think part of it is the feeling that we have no control. Um, You know that we're reacting to everyone else's demands or expectations, and so we derail ourselves sometimes by you know nine a.m. Much less Tuesday. (laughs) But so let's go back to a couple of these just a little bit. I've done several podcasts recently and workshops on the importance of sleep. I am now an avid believer that that is the foundation for everything because we need to heal overnight, right? What's a good guideline for someone trying to figure out? their best bedtime? Because like for me and I'm a scheduler, but I, if I go to bed too early, like I may be really tired, but if I go to bed too early, I'm going to wake up way too early. It doesn't work. Like I think, Oh, tonight I'll go to bed at eight o'clock, but then I'm awake at (laughs) 2am. So (laughs) how, how can someone, I don't know, kind of figure out what the best bedtime is for you?
0: Yeah. So it's, I mean, mostly this is just a math problem. Most adults have to wake up at pretty set times, at least during the week, because of work or family responsibilities. So the only variable that can move is the time you go to bed the night before, right? Um, And I always joke that going to bed early is how grownups can sleep in. Um, So, you know, that's something your listeners might want to think about uh, as we we think about what time we want to put ourselves lovingly but firmly to bed. Um, First, you know, you want to figure out how much sleep you need. And... One of the best ways to do this is to keep track of your time for a couple of weeks. I maintain that many people who are not chronic insomniacs, which is its own separate medical issue, but if you are not suffering from that, your body probably has a fairly strong set point that it is going to keep aiming to. And I see this in my own life. I track my time because I'm a bit of a productivity nutcase. I don't know. What do you want to call it? But uh, I've been tracking my time for seven years. And so I know that I average 7.4 hours of sleep per day. And I do this no matter what is happening. Like it, that doesn't mean I get that every single night. What it means is that over a period of about two months, that is what my body will make me get to. Um, And so if I skimp for a week or two, because it's, you know, one of my kids has been sick. If I've had a lot of early morning flights or anything like that, I will be making it up for the next few weeks by going to bed early, by sleeping later in the morning, by taking naps, all those things that your body makes you do in order to get back to your set point. So, you know, your listeners might try tracking their time for a couple of weeks and seeing. If you don't know, if that sounds terrible, try choosing a reasonable number, like seven and a half hours, right? Right. And then experiment with that. Like, okay, if you have to wake up at 6.30 in the morning and you want to say that the amount of sleep you need is seven and a half hours, then your bedtime would be 11 p.m right? This is just math. If you know you need eight hours of sleep and you need to wake up at 5.30 a.m., then your bedtime is 9.30. Again, this is not about how fun we are. It's not about what kind of people we are. It is just a math problem. And in order to make sure that you hit your bedtime, it's generally wise to set an alarm for about 30 minutes before that, which allows you to wrap up any loose ends, to brush your teeth, to do whatever you have to do to wind down to get into bed at that moment, um, so you don't, you know, suddenly realize, oh, it's my bedtime, and you're you're still going strong at that point. Like you, most people do need a little bit of wind down, but I find that when people stick to their bedtimes and don't vary from them really by more than an hour on weekends, like your energy levels just go through the roof. You know, you're not hitting the weekend with a huge sleep debt that you have to then pay off, which then means you can't go to bed on time on Sunday night because you slept in and then you start the cycle all over again. You find yourself doing crazy things like if I get to bed at 11 p.m. every night, and remember, I need 7.4 hours. I literally pop up at 6.24 on Saturday morning. It, It just it's like magic. I don't know what it is, but that's what I need. If I'm getting it every night, then that's what we hit. Um, and, and when my subjects in the book and um, in, in for the Tranquility by Tuesday project did this, they saw similar results. The proportion of people who said that they had enough, that they felt rested enough to handle their responsibilities rose by a quarter over the course of the study. Um, so, so we're really talking some huge energy swings.
1: Everyone feels like they can't get everything done and they're stressed and they're tired. And just getting that right amount of sleep each night makes an enormous difference. So, the movement part is also one of my, I don't want to say uh, obsessions lately, but (laughs) you talk in the book about how much more sedentary we got during the pandemic shutdowns. And I was grossly affected by it because I'm pretty hyper and I'm normally running around. I'm doing workshops. I'm driving all over the place. I'm, you know, just, I was very physically active. And I went from that to sitting here for 10 or 12 hours a day, every day. You know, trying to convert everything to be online and whatever. And I ended up with a condition that was quite painful. And so I now set alarms movement about every hour, just a little bit. I don't mean like I'm taking off a half an hour each time, but there's other benefits to this besides avoiding pain. <laughs> so talk. Although that is
0: a big one and that's, it is. that it is, is hugely motivational. I will say
1: that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very motivated to get up every hour now, but can you share the stimulant side of exercise? Because I think people, you know, when you say exercise, they go, Oh, I don't have time to go to the gym, but we're not talking about going to the gym. And I, and yeah, I agree with this. We're not
0: talking about going to the gym yeah. at all. I mean, so, if you want to go, great. Yeah, absolutely. Talk you out of it. Um, But I'm saying my move by 3pm rule, I said move for 10 minutes, like, you know, 10 minutes, we can fit in the schedule somewhere. And most people just walked. Like, I'm not saying you got to do something crazy. And, you know, it's funny, because you know, the excuses people have, I had people say something like, well, if I'm going to exercise, I have to change before and shower after and and so it's going to take 40 minutes for me to do this 10 minutes of movement. I'm like, no 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 okay. it will not. Like if you manage to walk from the parking lot to your desk without taking a shower, like my guess is that you can go do some sort of walking without it uh you know necessitating some uh, huge thing but yes mentally quadrupling the amount of time something takes is a is a handy way to talk yourself out of just about anything. The the benefits are huge. I mean, we we know exercise is a known mood booster. I mean, there's there's been some fascinating studies comparing Exercise to um, antidepressant medication for people who have mild to moderate depression, and I'm not saying that you know there aren't other things you should be doing if you fall into those categories. Obviously, there's a multifaceted treatment plan for depression, but moving helps a lot, right? And and so you know people who don't necessarily fall into those categories can can also see mood benefits from moving a lot. It helps our energy. There was an interesting study I came across that had people just do like five minute micro bursts of activity. And, and generally what they had them do is run up and down the stairs in, in their workplaces, because that was something people could do. When they said that they were feeling particularly weary during the day, like their energy was at a three on a 10 point scale. And after running up and down for, you know, five minutes or so, these people put themselves at a nine on the 10 point scale. And and they were still up there, like they were still north of a six, like an hour later. So, so we're talking, you know, Investing that five minutes in doing something allowed them to be more energetic for the next hour um, versus just sitting there and and feeling like I can't get anything done. So, you know, I'm telling people to think of exercise not as something that's going to make you like look great in a swimsuit, lose weight. Like I could not care less about that. I am talking about making you feel better, making you have more energy. It, It basically is like building a reset button into your day right? Like when you go make yourself take a 10 minute active break, some point in the first half of your day, all of a sudden the rest of the day looks like it's more doable.
1: I know it sounds counterintuitive to some people to think when they're tired and what they want to do is kind of slump down in a chair, you know what I mean? And rest. If they get up and move, it passes, like you said, five minutes, 10 minutes. And for me, it lasts two or three hours. So as soon as I start getting that feeling, I'm like, I need to go take a walk or I need to go out in the back and garden for 10 minutes or anything just to get up and move. So totally agree with that one. So the second part of the book is really about what you call making good things happen. And rule four is your three times a week habit. And I found this take interesting because I am one of those people who've really always assumed or practiced doing something every day to make it a habit. But you make a good point about The three days will make it a habit. And I was wondering if you could explain why that's beneficial for people.
0: Well, we get to define habits any way we want. Um, And, you know, most people would think of like going to work as a habit, but they go to work five days a week. Like they don't do it seven days. Um, You know, there are many things we do fewer than seven days a week that we still consider to be habits. And so I would say that generally when you do something three times a week, it feels like it's happening regularly. And so I feel like you can say it's part of your identity. Like if you play the piano three times a week, you are a piano player. If you run three times a week, you are a runner. Um, If your family eats meals together three times a week, you are a family that eats together. So if you do something three times a week, you can have it be part of your identity. And the reason this matters is that for a lot of things that people do wish to do, especially during the very busy years of life, when people are say building a career, raising a family, you can't do these things every day. And if you hold up daily as what you should be doing and, and as the only thing that counts, then you'll just constantly feel defeated. But we don't have to say daily. I mean again, you know, if you go to work five days a week and think that that's a habit, like you know, then then why not something that happens three or four times a week. and often three is doable because people are doing these things that are important to them. They're just not doing them as much as they want. And so if you get discouraged and you're like, oh, I'm playing the piano, but I, you know, I only get to do it like once or twice a week. Well, if your goal is three, like that's within reach, right? How exciting. We just have to tweak our schedule, scale it up a little bit, as opposed to thinking we need to do a total schedule overhaul. And I found that for so many people, letting go of this idea that things had to happen daily or it didn't count allowed them to actually do more of the thing because they weren't feeling so defeated. Um, And so they're like, yeah, I can get to three. And now I'm doing this thing that feels life-giving to me as opposed to just lamenting that I'm not doing it enough. So a lot of letting go of the guilt and letting people change their identities now, as opposed to thinking they need to wait for some future time when life is going to calm down.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's what I really liked about the approach is that it feels less overwhelming. And again, because people are so busy, I know you you have five children. I do. That's just just even if you didn't have a full time career, (laughs) that's very busy. So, um, I think people should really take this to heart because if you figured this out, um, (laughs) that's a, a good example. Let's go to Rule Six, which is one big adventure, one little adventure in the book, and you share your Norwegian experience. And I thought it was a really great example about how to make certain time memorable. So could you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, so this rule to do one big adventure and one little adventure each week is really about building more memories into our lives because memories make us feel that time is more expansive. It doesn't just disappear into these memory sinkholes. Um, The phrase I use is that we don't say, where did the time go when we remember where the time went and having little adventures in our lives is one way to do this. And, and the example I start this chapter with is just asking this question of like, how is it that I can remember an afternoon in 2006 in this just incredible level of detail? And the reason is it because I got lost in a blizzard on a Norwegian mountain top, right? And it was like, you know, it, it like around the summer solstice, so you weren't prepared for a blizzard. And, you know, my husband and I were hiking and we got lost in the blizzard. Um, we came across some... Um, Norwegian soldiers who are hiking on their leave who are also lost the four, the six of us together like got ourselves out of there got down the mountain eventually you know all all good you're <laughs> here I'm here um, but it, it was just clearly a very memorable sort of experience like you don't forget that very easily um, whereas you know it so it really wasn't that long I mean it was maybe like you know five six hours which is the same amount of time that was like you know, yesterday between lunch and dinner. Like, but can I remember yesterday between lunch and dinner in excruciating detail? Well, no, I cannot. And the reason is that it just wasn't as memorable as getting lost in a blizzard on a Norwegian mountaintop. Now, I am not suggesting that anyone go and get themselves lost in a blizzard on a Norwegian mountaintop, but I am pointing out that it is when things are novel, intense, out of our comfort zone, um, different than what is normally happening day to day. That is what makes us create memories. Um, and if we you know, live by this principle that the more memories we have, the more rich and full time seems, then we need to figure out a way to make more memories in our lives. And this idea of doing one big adventure, one little adventure each week is, is trying to strike a good balance between your people be like, well, I like my routines. I like your routines, too. Like routines are great. Routines make good choices automatic. And, you know, we also don't want to exhaust or bankrupt ourselves. But doing two novel things per week. Two things that are just out of the ordinary or memorable per week can strike that good balance. A big adventure is something that might take three to four hours. So think half a weekend day, you know, just something to put into your weekend to make your weekend a little bit more interesting when you're talking about it on Monday morning. And then a little adventure is something that can take less than an hour. So you could do it on your lunch break. You could do it on a weekday evening, just as long as it's something out of the ordinary. And if you put those two adventures into your life each week, you will change your entire perception of time. I mean, you know, the people who did this, like they changed their perceptions of themselves. They're like, we are adventurous people. We are the kind of people who do fun stuff, which is just a very different way to go through life. And also knowing you have adventures coming up, you know, people schedule fun things, they start looking forward to them. And, you know, life changes entirely when we constantly have stuff we are looking forward to.
1: Yeah, it's so good for the mind. So good for the emotions too, right? The, the little adventure doesn't have to be, you know, some dramatic thing that's going to take up time or money, or it's just really kind of stepping out of your comfort zone a little bit. Uh, and that does trigger that uh, response in the brain. So I thought that was great. Rule seven is to take one night for you. And what I found interesting about this that was different that I hadn't really um, explored before is you disagree with the concept that fun activities have to be Flexible. And so can you explain why a regularly scheduled fun experience well, right there it sounds funny right it's going to be a <laughs> scheduled fun experience is beneficial and
0: commitment to fun yes. <laughs> yeah
1: and 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 also what can people do about the guilt involved of saying this night is just for me
0: yeah so i am encouraging people to take one night per week or the equivalent number of hours on a weekend whatever you want to do but to do something that is not work and is not your family responsibilities and you know, I want every adult in a household to be able to do this, right? So, you know, doesn't matter, people are working or not working, but you know, both of you take one night per week off for something that is just for you. And, you know, when I suggested people do this, I, you know, I, I asked people what they thought they would do in the study. And I got a ton of people saying, so I'm going to take a bubble bath. Um, I'm going to read for fun. And those are great. Those are great ideas. But what I was really getting at with this idea is to make a commitment to something um, that is you know, not work and not family responsibility. So I, for instance, sing in a choir. We meet every Thursday night at 7 p.m. The rehearsal starts in a specific place at a specific time, like I need to be there, right? But I have found that it is the commitment that makes busy people do it. Because you think about it, if you're fun, your fun you want to have every week is taking a bubble bath. Like When are you going to do it? I don't know. Well, you're sort of looking around, it's not a specific time. So it kind of doesn't necessarily always happen. So you can't necessarily look forward to it. And maybe you say, okay, Thursday night, Thursday night's my when I'm going to do my long bubble bath. And then, you know, your boss has some thing they want you to take care of. And you're like, well, okay, I can do that because I mean, it's just a bubble bath. Or your kid wants you to drive her to the mall on Thursday night. And you're like, well, I mean, my bathtub isn't going anywhere. (laughs) And then, you know, so things that can happen whenever. What I say is that they often wind up happening. Win, never, (laughs) because they just, you know, everything else will push it around. Your fun being flexible means that your fun becomes contingent on other people not wanting you to do something else. So if you are serious about your fun, you need to make a commitment to it. Um, And so if you are playing in a string quartet at 7 p.m. on Tuesdays, if you don't show up, it is a string trio, right? Like you have to be there. And so you will be there even when life is busy. Like you'll tell your kid, I'll drive you to the mall tomorrow night, but I can't do it tonight. Like, you know, you work out with your colleagues that if there's some emergency on Tuesday night, they cover it because you promised to cover for them on Monday or Wednesday, right? Like this is just what you start to do in order to make it happen. And this can be transformative in our lives. Like when we know we have this thing coming up It's like a mini vacation in the middle of the week. Um, And it just allows people to feel like they always have something to look forward to. The same thing we talked about with the adventures, um, to feel that they are more than work and family responsibilities, that they get to have fun too.
1: Yeah, I thought it was excellent. I had sort of an insight. I love learning, and people think I'm odd because I keep going back to school or signing up for classes, you know, whatever workshops. But it didn't dawn on me until I read this that, oh, that's because. Then it is a commitment, and I'm firm about it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's me time, even though I'm in a classroom or you know in a hotel ballroom or something. But it is it's setting that boundary that you know I love you. I, you know I, I'm committed to my work, but I've committed to this, and I have to because you know it's mm-hmm. class time. And I didn't realize that that must be part of what motivates me, or part of my love of going to a, like a formal training or formal school, is because I'm off limits. We're not good at that like with the bubble bath or many other things, right? If it's not something that is really set like that, we do give in all the time. I was thinking about like all the rest of the time, it's like, okay, well, this is more important than my whatever, but not if I've paid for classes and I'm committed to to the topic, I gotta go. (laughs) go.
0: Having someplace you need to go um, really does make it happen.
1: Makes a huge difference. Okay, so part three is about wasting less time. And one of the areas that you cover is batching the little things. And I am devoted to batching based more on neuroscience. Like I've figured out I can get so much more done if I kind of stay in the same lane for a while. You know, if it's writing time, it's writing everything, writing podcasts, writing articles, writing blogs, but I try to batch them. But you talk about batching the little things to save time. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why batching activities actually helps us waste less time.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about various things that people wind up having on their brains that they need to do, um, you know, there's a million forms that need to be filled out or ordering household supplies or, you know, paying bills or all these tasks that do need to get done, but they are not really our top priority at any given point. And, you know, what tends to happen is people sort of just do them either when they think of them or just sort of like they want to clear the decks like get to all the little stuff then I can finally focus on the big stuff but our brains just don't work that way I mean you know you run out of energy so you start your day by like okay I'm gonna cross these eight things off my list and then I'll get to the big stuff like by the time you cross the eight things off your list like you got a meeting you got a call there's lunch and then you're energy drops and it's say you never get to the big stuff and it it can feel very frustrating or even worse you know if we have some creative project we're wrestling with this is this is the more insidious problem you're like okay i'm gonna write this thing it's really important for me to write this thing and oh did i pay that bill (laughs) and then you stop what you're doing stop wrestling with the issue to go pay the bill because you know yes it needs to be done but it's also a convenient way to give yourself a little shot in the arm like ooh i did something i crossed something off the list and and you know give yourself the easy win but it might be depriving you of the bigger win that would come from longer more focused periods of work or with relaxation you know people will wind up like jumping up every minute to do something and never feel like they can sit down and relax so i suggest creating a batching time I do sort of a longer batching time often on Fridays um, where I push anything non-urgent to Friday and try to do it then. Um, but you know, if that doesn't work for you, because some people have stuff that they've got to get to quicker, I mean, maybe you can do a short batching period after lunch on the workday, right? But push all the small stuff to then and leave you know the times when you're better able to focus open for deeper work or on weekends, for instance, if you have a list of things you need to take care of, confine it to one window right? So if you find yourself looking at a set, you know, a task at some other point that needs to happen, like your library books are sitting there, they need to go back to the library, and you start feeling guilty on Saturday because you're not doing it, you're like, wait, no, no, there is a time. I have a batch time for all this stuff at 4 p.m. on Saturday. If it is not 4 p.m. on Saturday, I don't need to do it. I don't have to feel guilty looking at those library books. I can just relax. So this is what I want people to do. I want them to leave time open for deeper work, or for rela- relaxation. And by batching the little things, we can do that.
1: Um, and I really do think our brains are so overtasked from task switching. You know what I mean? Where we, it takes so long to get back on track once you do that. So, like you were saying, if you're in the middle of writing something, and that's one of my biggest challenges all the time is getting that block of time to focus on writing. And it's tempting to go, oh, well, there's 14 things over here I could knock out in one hour and I'd feel really good about myself. But then of course I don't, because now I've still got to go back to the writing and then it's harder to get your brain back in that mode. So um, I, I definitely think that's effective. The The last rule is effortful before effortless. And you say, and I'm, this is, I think this is a quote right out of the book, um, you say that leisure time is too precious to be totally leisurely about leisure. So, what do you mean by that? And what is effortful fun versus effortless? It's a mouthful. Effortless <laughs> yes, fun. Yes, it is.
0: It's <laughs> funny because I just recorded the audio book of this, and I was like, "But effortful, effortful." <laughs> it's hard to say. Um, so, effortful fun is fun that takes a little bit of effort. So, it's slightly more active fun. Things like reading, hobbies, crafting, puzzles, um, communicating with friends and family. These are all sorts of, you know, high value. Leisure activities, and they are the things that people say, well, "I'd love to do more of if only I had the time." Now, the funny part of that is because we spend a ton of time, many of us, on effortless fun. This is, you know, often passive fun. Things like social media, reading headlines, watching uh, TV, or you know, streaming things, things like that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong. With effortless fun, there's a lot of fun stuff online. There's um, a lot of great shows out there that people can stream, You know, it's, it's wonderful. But the problem is because these things are easier, we tend to fill the bulk of our leisure time with them and we spend less time on the effortful fun that would in fact bring us a lot more joy. And so my point with this rule is challenging people to do just a few minutes of effortful fun before they do effortless fun. So if you are, for instance, Picking up your phone to start scrolling around. Like you got five minutes. You're waiting for a phone call to start. You're waiting for the carpool to bring your kids home. You're like, I'm picking up my phone. I'm just looking through it. Like we don't even notice we're doing that. And this is how we wind up with like three hours of screen time a day. <laughs> it's like all there in little five minute chunks. But when you open your phone, it would be just as easy to go to, let's say, the Kindle app or, you know, Nook or Apple's books app, right? And start reading an ebook and just read for two to three minutes. And then you can go scroll around however much you like right? Or that moment at night after you have gotten your kids to bed or you finished your chores, there's that moment of truth. What am I going to do? You know, I've got two hours before my bedtime. Um, So, you know, instead of just crashing on the couch, challenge yourself to do like 15 to 20 minutes of something creative or a puzzle or, you know, calling a friend. And then you can collapse on the couch and stream whatever you want for the rest of the night, right? But by committing to do the effortful fun first, a couple of things happen. One is often people keep going with the effortful fun, because like it turns out to be more fun to talk to a friend than to look at photos of influencers online who are wearing matching outfits with their entire family doing whatever it is they're doing selling a product. Um, So you probably will want to keep going. And that's great. But even if you don't Like these small bits of time can add up. So, you know, you read for three minutes, 10 times a day. That's another 30 minutes of reading. Like that's quite a bit. Um, And you also just get to do both kinds of fun because the problem is when you sit down and start with the effortless fun, you won't switch over to the effortful fun because it just takes effort. It's hard to stop what you're doing and go do that. Whereas if you start with the effortful fun, then you will have both kinds of fun. So, you know, you can read a chapter in War and Peace for five minutes, you know, and then go watch Selling Sunset for the rest of the evening and still be the kind of person who does both.
1: Yeah, I think it's such an opportunity to improve your quality of life. Just that one, just that one rule, because I agree, we don't realize how much time we waste doing things that we will never remember. We're not going to look back and go, thank goodness I saw that Instagram or TikTok or whatever, right? (laughs)
0: Well, and this was honestly one of the most impactful rules of the entire survey. I mean, when I asked people at the end of the study, you know, to agree or disagree on a seven point scale with the the question, you know, the statement yesterday, I didn't waste time on things that didn't matter to me. Scores on that one rose 32% over the course of the study. Um, which is just a huge amount, right? Like, just, you know, people felt like they were wasting less time. And these were busy people. I mean, their lives didn't suggest a whole lot of wasted time in the first place. But with this rule, they were wasting even less of it. They were having a lot more fun uh, with their limited leisure time.
1: Wonderful. Well, one of the things I really appreciated about the book is simply that you provided a framework for people to be really very mindful about their time. And Most people don't realize how mindless they are about their time, right? They feel like they're busy and overwhelmed, but a lot of it is simply they don't have the structure in place. And I don't mean like, again, not a rigid structure, but a process to check in and be mindful about how are they spending their time? What are they doing in that time? Again, I love the memory making part because I've never really kind of pursued that aspect of making memories an intention instead of it just happening. And then it's memorable. So Definitely appreciated that. You include step-by-step instructions on how to go about it. I do, again, appreciate that you included the participants' reactions and responses to these rules because I think a lot of people will find something that they can resonate with or ways to adjust so that they can still try some of these. And I really think that if someone is struggling with their time management, which you have a place in the book where you talk about the fact that there's 168 hours in the week and we actually have 72 hours that are discretionary and It made me laugh because I do a workshop on this. And that's exactly what I have. in there. like, you have 72 hours. That's a lot every week. And we don't think of it that way. We're like, oh, by the time we get home, there's no time left. You know, we don't do anything. So you have 72 hours each week to do something with. In addition to reading the book, of course, can you just share one final thought about maybe where our listeners could start if they're trying to get their time management under better control?
0: Well, I always suggest that people do try tracking their time, um, ideally for a week, because that is the, you know, fundamental unit of how we live our lives. Um, You know, that that's the the cycle of life that keeps repeating, but try tracking your time, see where it goes. Um, You know, if you want to spend your time better, it helps to know where the time is going now, because I mean, otherwise, how do you know if you're changing the right thing? Maybe something you thought was a problem just isn't. Maybe something you've never even considered taking far more time than you might imagine. We always want to work from good data. I, I love data. Um, and and so we want to make sure that we are working from correct data. And so I'd suggest people figure that out. Take a good look at your life. And you might be surprised or you might not, but it doesn't hurt to find out.
1: Absolutely. And I have to tell you, we we do an exercise in the workshop where we have them write down. And it's I think I've got it in 15-minute increments. But like, what does what your typical day look like? Just fill in what you do. And it's supposed to total 24 hours, right? And instead it totals 16 or 18. And then they're like, but where? And where is it, the, the exercise is called, where does the time go? And it's like, well, what were you filling in those? You did something for the 24 hours, right? So I think sometimes you will be surprised because you don't realize. So I think that's excellent advice. And I want to thank you so much for all of the wisdom today. And uh, again, the book is Tranquility by Tuesday, Nine Ways to Calm the Chaos and Make Time for What Matters. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you again to Laura for joining us today and sharing such a great framework for being mindful about our time. You can find more information on Laura's work at lauravandercam.com and find her podcast Before Breakfast wherever you listen to shows. You'll find a link to her book on our website at amindfulmoment.com. And you can see the entire interview on our YouTube channel at Work to Live. Until next time, I encourage you to meditate daily and be mindful in all of your everyday activities. Simply bring your full awareness to the present moment to build your mindfulness skills, paying attention to every detail of what you're doing, from washing dishes to work tasks to taking a walk. Your mind will wander, and that's normal. Each time you notice it has wandered, that's mindfulness. Consider how wonderful the world could be if everyone was mindful. You can help make that happen. It all starts with a mindful moment. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like The Daily Meditation Podcast, Everything Everywhere, and Movie Therapy. We deeply appreciate your support at patreon.com slash amindfulmoment. Please be sure to subscribe to A Mindful Moment and follow us on Instagram at A Mindful Moment Podcast. Visit our website, amindfulmoment.com, to access podcasts, scripts, and book recommendations. A Mindful Moment is written and hosted by Teresa McKee and or Melissa Sims. The Spanish version is translated and hosted by Paola Tile. Intro music, Retreat by Jason Farnham. Outro music, Morning Stroll by Josh Kirsch, MediaWrite Productions. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Work to Live Productions.